You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part three in our series on the Belgica Expedition. I have two notes for today. Note number one. Our story is going to take place off the Antarctic Peninsula, also known as Gramland, directly south of Cape Horn, as well as in the Bellinghausen Sea. If you don't know where these places are and want some reference, check out our website, explorerspodcast.com. There you can find a map to go with the story. Note number two. I realized in our previous episodes, I didn't clarify the titles of the expedition's leaders, and it may have led to some confusion. The leader of the expedition was Adrian Daguerre Lache. He is often referred to as the commander or commandant. The captain of the ship was Georges Lequante. But make no mistake, Daguerre Lache was the boss in all ways. Lequante is a fine officer, but it is Daguerre Lache who makes all the major decisions and takes over when things get rough. I just wanted to point that out in case there was any confusion. Okay, that is it for notes. On to part three of the Belgica expedition. Our story last time left off with the Belgica reaching Antarctica on January 23, 1898. Reaching the continent along the western side of the Antarctic Peninsula was a huge achievement. The expedition had nearly come to an end when Belgica had been stuck on some rocks in the channels of Tierra del Fuego. But the sturdy whaler had gotten off the rocks without major damage and continued her mission. For Adrien de Garlache, reaching the continent was a dream come true. Things were not, however, all fine and dandy. The ship had lost one man, Carl Wink, in a storm, and his death hovered over everything they did. It was also a stark reminder that the expedition was heading into a place of mystery and danger. Many ships had been lost in these waters, and what Belgica was doing was immensely risky. And speaking of the plans of Belgica, let's talk about those. According to the mission outline, Belgica was to reach Antarctica and then travel west along the continent's coastline. They would map the coast, collect plants and animal specimens, take scientific readings, and just get to know Antarctica like no one had ever done. Belgica was scheduled to reach the other side of the continent, at Victoria Land, where a winter camp was to be set up. The camp would consist of four men who would winter on the continent, and then in the spring, make a dash on skis to the magnetic South Pole. Belgica would spend the winter in Australia, and then return in the summer to retrieve the South Pole team and do some exploring while the weather was good. This was an ambitious yet practical plan. However, the big problem was that Belgica had arrived in Antarctica later than expected. This meant that the men would have to operate with enhanced speed and urgency, which, as we will see, was not the hallmark of Adrien de Garlache. Anyhow, the date was January 24, 1898, and Belgica was anchored off the Antarctic Peninsula. The day before, the men had taken a boat ashore to Auguste Island, named after de Garlache's father. It was a small, nondescript place, but the scientists had come back with some rock and soil samples and were giddy at what lay ahead. Emil Danko had managed to capture a pair of penguins. A note about Emil Danko. 
He was technically assigned to conduct the expedition's geophysical observations, but he was not qualified for the job or good at it. His best attribute was his steadfast loyalty to his longtime friend, Dagar Lash. Now, one of the first things Dagar Lash discovered upon reaching the area was just how inaccurate maps were of the region. And soon he realized that every place they went offered a chance of a big discovery. That's enticing and a little bit scary. Belgica had entered a place called Hughes Bay near the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula. The maps of the time showed this as a solid landmass, but Belgica found uncharted islands and passages that went inland. The possibility of a channel through the peninsula and into the Weddell Sea was of interest to Dagar Lash. Belgica spent three days in Hughes Bay, charting the coastline and collecting scientific samples and data. During this time, Roald Amundsen broke out his skis, making the first ever ski trip on the continent. On January 27th, Belgica headed southwest into a channel, which today is called the Gerlache Strait. It was a stunning scene as they cut between two mountains 5,000 feet high, or 1,500 meters. The men knew that they were the first people to ever travel to these places, and it was a heady feeling, but also disconcerting. The ship's doctor, Frederick Cook, wrote, quote, Could there be a place more desperately silent or hopelessly deserted? End quote. The men were fully understanding just how desolate and alone they were. Dagarlash and his team mapped their course the entire time. Drinking water was collected from glacial streams. The geologist Henrik Arktowski collected rocks. Emil Rakovica, the expedition's naturalist, collected insects, seaweed, moss, lichen, and anything he found of interest. The scientists were so thrilled at what they were doing, it was not uncommon for them to do exceedingly dangerous, and perhaps foolish, things to collect a specimen. This included climbing up sheer cliffs just to collect a bit of moss or lichen. The next few weeks would be described by the men as something akin to a fairy tale. All around them, there were towering snow-covered mountains, packs of penguins and seals and whales, and flocks of petrels and gulls. There were icebergs and expanses of white, as well as walls of ice more than 100 feet high. The Belgica moved through all of this, the first men in history to ever do so. Dr. Frederick Cook, who had extensive experience in the Arctic, was amazed at the landscapes. In addition to being the expedition's doctor, Cook was assigned the job of photographer, and he set up his camera on the ship's decks and collected the first ever photos of the continent. By the way, Cook had a natural eye for photography, and the images he collected in Antarctica are quite stunning. Some of the most amazing photos are of Belgica cruising through these channels. But the black-and-white photography of Cook's doesn't do justice to the stunning colors of the icebergs and mountains. The orange, yellow, and red lichen are just shades of gray in these photos and the vivid and beautiful blues of the icebergs are lost in black and white. No matter, it was all a stunning alien world that no one had ever ventured into before. Now, one thing that surprised the crew was the awful odors they encountered. Penguin rookeries and seal colonies could be smelled for miles. The ship found one penguin colony they estimated had a population of 40,000, and the breath of some of these animals was astounding. One time, Emil Rakovica, the expedition's naturalist, saw the whale approaching the ship and rushed to grab a camera for a good photo. As it passed by, the whale spelt set up an enormous spray of water. That sounds harmless, except the spray was infused with all the yuck that had been inside the whale. Rakovica said, quote, My nose was at this moment invaded by a scent so repulsive that I am ashamed to admit that I forgot to press the shutter. End quote. Speaking of animals, the team relished the opportunity to collect those that called Antarctica home. There were leopard and weddell seals, all sorts of seabirds, and of course penguins. There were two types of penguins in the area, 
the Chin Strap and the Gen 2. The former were territorial and combative, the latter were easygoing and colorful. None of them had any fear of humans, so they just walked right up to the men. The Gen 2 penguins were so friendly, three were brought on the ship as pets. Two died soon after, but another named Bibi settled in. Bibi soon was being spoiled by the crew and wandered the deck freely. I mentioned the scientists were collecting samples, and that included animals. This was an important part of the scientific mission, and a messy one. It meant killing specimens, which included cutting them apart and preserving their organs and so forth. Within three weeks, over 400 specimens of plants, animal, fungi, and algae had been collected. 110 of these were unknown to science. The one animal that eluded Rakovica was a whale, but killing one of those was simply impractical. To handle all of this, one of the rooms below deck was turned into a storage for the growing number of zoological and botanical samples. Now, the study of nature was just one important element of Belgica's mission. Another was geographical. The expedition was here to produce maps and charts to further understand the region. The man behind this was Captain Georges Lequante, and the 28-year-old naval officer was really good at his job. He was an exceptional mathematician, and he had the rigorous mindset of a surveyor when it came to plotting out the coastline. The main problem for Lequante were the overcast skies. For figuring out latitude, clear skies were needed, but those days were few and far between. To counter this problem, Lequante proposed landing a party on a large island, which today is called Brabant Island, and having the men climb to a high vantage point to use a theodolite to help with his calculations. A theodolite is a precision optical instrument for measuring angles between designated visible points in the horizon and vertical planes. Lequante needed the instrument brought to a high location, a couple of thousand feet, for this to work. Brabant Island was perfect for this. It was a 680-square-mile landmass, with mountains rising up to as high as 2,500 meters, or 8,000 feet. Lequante taught the men how to use the theodolite, and the team of Cook, Amundsen, Danko, and Descarlache rode to the island on January 30th. Now, this was not a simple excursion. The team had eyed up a high mountain peak from the ship, and that was their goal. The men had two sledges loaded with 15 days of food, gear, camping equipment, and instruments. It was estimated that the journey inland and back would take no more than seven or eight days. And thus, the first sledge journey in history on the Antarctic continent began. While the sledges headed inland, Laquante explored and mapped the channel. The team moved inland, going through several feet of snow at an incline of 40 degrees. It took them four hours to reach level ground at about 500 feet or 150 meters. Here they set up camp for the night as a storm was on the horizon. It would be the first time humans had overnighted on the Antarctic continent. The men had a tent of oiled silk with four walls and a gable roof shaped like a house. It was not easy to set up, especially as the winds whipped up. The next day the men continued toward the peak they had sighted, but they eventually ran into a wide impassable crevasse. They had to retreat to level ground. Two notes here. When you hear the word crevasse, it's different from the word crevice. A crevice is more like a crack. A crevasse, on the other hand, is a wide opening. A crevasse can be a few feet wide or a hundred or more, and it can be shallow where a person can climb down a ways and right back up to the other side or fall into nothingness. I just want to remind people of the difference between the two so there is no confusion. Second note, the men of the expedition were learning something about travel in Antarctica, and that was that the snow and ice are incredibly deceptive. What looks like clear, smooth, flat surface is usually none of those things. The expanse of snow often hides big crevasses, 
so someone can travel for hours towards a destination and find their way blocked, just like what had happened to the men of Belgica. When that happens, all you can do is turn around and try to find a detour or abandon your task. Anyhow, Dagerlosh decided to try for their peak via a new route. This time, it would be himself and Danko hauling one of the sledges with them. Both men knew how to ski. And so Dagerlosh and his friend would strike out on their own, but soon found the slopes were riddled with crevasses, some of them hundreds of feet deep. Now, a crevasse is always problematic, but the real danger was when a crevasse was covered by a layer of snow. Danko and Dagerlosh found this out, and the result was the near death of Danko. The two men were moving along the slopes when, out of nowhere, Emil Danko simply disappeared, the snow beneath his feet collapsing. Dagarlosh raced to the crevasse to find his friend near the ledge, his skis caught in the walls, a lot of nothingness below. Dagarlosh pulled Danko back onto the surface, a disaster avoided. Attempts were made to try and push higher, but the two men were thwarted each time. Dagarlosh eventually gave up and set up the theodolite at a high point of land that jutted out above the water. The elevation was about a thousand feet above sea level. The two men then waited for two days for the clouds to clear to make their measurements. The visuals that day were stunning, a white world no one had ever really seen from this vantage. Regarding the theodolite readings, they ended up being mostly useless since they had not gotten high enough for the distant islands to stand out from the mainland. But Dagarlash's excursion did have value. From this vantage, he could see that there was no passage through the Antarctic Peninsula to the Weddell Sea in the east. Now, while Dagarlash and Danko went on their excursion, Roald Amundsen and Frederick Cook decided they were going to climb a mountain. Why? Well, for fun. The two men simply decided it would be a gas to just climb a mountain in Antarctica, so they headed off. Cook and Amundsen's little side adventure would demonstrate that they were both cut from the same cloth. They were on this expedition for the adventure, the thrill, and the glory. Science was fine, but hot damn, being the first people to climb a mountain in Antarctica was way cooler. The two men would thus get along well with one another and learn to trust each other. Both were enterprising and inventive men, and in the coming months they would huddle together and design things like a better tent for polar use. And Cook would show Amundsen all sorts of skills and items he had acquired and learned about in the Arctic. This included Cook's Inuit sealskin clothing from Greenland. The wicking material actually lets a man avoid the brutal cycle of sweating and freezing in these low temperatures. Anyhow, the two men would have quite the adventure on this excursion. The first thing they encountered were the dangerous snow bridges. These were bridges of snow that formed over crevasses. Snow bridges are notoriously fickle and could collapse at any time. Cook and Amundsen dared to inch their way across some of these bridges and survived. Also, the two men would, like Dagarlash and Danko, experience the joy and fun of a crevasse opening under their feet. In this case, it was Cook who was swallowed by the snow. Amundsen, as soon as he felt the pull on the rope, dug in so as not to get dragged into the crevasse himself. Amundsen steadied himself an inch closer to the ledge to find Cook dangling above the darkness of a deep crevasse. He helped his comrade out of peril, and the men carried on. The two men reached their peak at about 1,500 feet in height, or 460 meters, and returned to the others. Of it all, author Julian Sancton wrote, quote, Perhaps no greater insight into the minds of Amundsen and Cook can be found then in their response to this ordeal. They had twice nearly lost their lives, and on an adventure justified by little more than thrill-seeking. But rather than being humbled by the many ways that ice and snow might kill them, they were energized. End quote. Of Cook, Amundsen would say, quote, The practical and calm way this man works is interesting to see. I hope that there are more of these wonderful trips to come. End quote. 
So the excursion to Brabant Island was ultimately a failure, but the men did learn a lot. Their tents, clothing, and sleeping gear were not cut out for the brutal Antarctic weather, and they needed to prepare better for any future excursions. Amundsen wrote down notes, dress in light wool, bring waterproof matches and snow goggles, stuff like that. He was already preparing for his own future adventures. Now, as the Belgica steamed further along the Gerlache Strait, the Commandant knew that he had a few problems on his hands. First, Belgica was still near the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, meaning she was hundreds of miles behind schedule. He needed to get moving to reach Victoria Land, which was the location of the magnetic South Pole. Second, the expedition had not gone very far south. She had not reached the Antarctic Circle, which sits at 66 degrees 30 minutes south. This was a big goal for Dagarlash, and if he failed to reach it, he felt the press would eviscerate him. But let's remember, Dagarlash had made this a mission of science, and he didn't want to give that side of the expedition the short shrift. And he didn't like confrontation, so when the scientist asked to go ashore at some island or whatever, he usually said yes, despite knowing that he was falling behind. By February 12, 1898, his team had made 20 landings on the continent, more than all the previous expeditions combined. This was great, but let's be clear, this wasn't the sexy sort of stuff that the newspapers wanted. Dagarlash was terrified of heading back to Australia for the winter and not having any cool record or achievement to report. It was at this time that Dagarlash's fortunes would appear to change. Belgica sailed through a narrow canyon flanked by rocks far above the top of the ship and exited the channel that now bears his name and entered the Bellinghausen Sea. Here the expedition saw ice, a lot of it. Hundreds of icebergs floated in an endless sea of loose ice. Frederick Cook said the entire crew couldn't help but to stand and stare in amazement at this new world of ice. Belgica sailed into this maze. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics, like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for thru-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. The Belgica exited the Gerlach Strait and into the Bellinghausen Sea to see a vast expanse of icebergs and ice flows. Now, the good thing for Degarlach was that as they pushed west, there were fewer islands and no coastline in sight, save for some distant mountaintops. 
This meant no landings, just the ability to push onward in as fast a manner as possible. It also meant storms, some of which were so severe, everyone on the ship got sick. Now, the coastline of Antarctica was mostly blocked by ice, so Belgica moved along the edge of the ice pack, probing for a lead to the south. However, the further south the ship went, and with each passing day, things got more dangerous. There were reefs, tiny islands of rock, icebergs, and now severe weather. On the evening of February 13th, Belgica found itself surrounded by obstacles on all sides, and in a difficult storm, forcing de Garlache to take the helm. At one point, the ship came within 20 feet, or 6 meters, of a rock, and the water was at times barely deep enough for the ship to pass through it without scraping the bottom. It culminated with Belgica facing two massive icebergs, each more than 100 feet, or 160 meters, tall. Daguerlache took aim at passing between the two great bergs. Amundsen later wrote this of the desperate moment, quote, Inside I pray to you, God, you may steer us as you will, end quote but Degarlache would weave the ship through these perils and split the massive icebergs and head southwest into the Bellinghausen Sea. Belgica eventually found clear water and pushed south, crossing the Antarctic Circle on February 15th. Degarlache could now check that goal off of his list. The next goal was passing James Cook at 71 degrees 10 minutes south. The furthest south record, by the way, was 78 degrees 9 minutes south by James Clark Ross in 1842 but that had been done on the other side of the continent. Belgica pressed onward, despite the days growing shorter and the ice changing. It was not long before the water froze around the ship. It was then that the men experienced the sound of ice pressing against the hull of Belgica. It was unnerving, especially for those without experience at sea. The groans and moans of the ship made sleeping difficult at night. Over the next week, the peril of the ice became more and more pronounced. Degarlache tried to keep the ship at the edge of the ice pack and advance when the opportunity arose, but the pack kept expanding with each passing day. On February 18th, the ship only progressed two miles due to the ice. Degarlache was going to have to make a decision soon. Things were getting more dangerous by the day. The ship was being held by the ice on occasion, just for a short time, maybe an hour or two. Nothing serious, but it was only going to get worse. Degarlache pondered his next move. Should he retreat and make for Australia? The idea bothered him. The newspapers would not be impressed by his accomplishments thus far. Frederick Cook could see the danger that lay ahead, and he was worried about what Degarlache might do. Cook felt that they should avoid being caught in the ice at all costs. Of it, he said, quote, In reality, we are as hopelessly isolated as if we were on the surface of Mars, and we are plunging still deeper and deeper into the white Antarctic silence. End quote. As I said, Belgica was not prepared for overwintering in Antarctica. One only had to look at some recent polar expeditions to see how bad that had turned out. The Franklin expedition had gone into the north with 129 men. None had come home. The USS Jeannette, under the command of George W. DeLong, had set out for the North Pole in 1879 and been trapped in the ice off of Siberia. The ship had drifted for two years before being crushed. Only 13 of the 33 men survived. And these ships had been prepared for the cold, and they still ended in disaster. Belgica had winter clothing and gear, but just for four men, who were going to overwinter in Victoria land and then make a dash for the magnetic South Pole. And who knows what the ice had in store for Belgica. The polar ice is notoriously fickle, clear one year, then thick and unyielding for the next decade. If the ship got frozen in, there was no promise it would ever come out or even survive the experience. But the allure to keep going was strong. The men sighted penguins and seals together, indicative of being near a landmass. This excited the men, but nothing would ever come of it. 
On February 23rd, the ice was firm enough for the men to go out on it, but not that firm. Cook and Desgarloches went walking on the ice, only to have the Commandant fall through and into the sea. He had to be pulled out by Cook. Later that day, Desgarloches brought his officers together and asked them about the idea of wintering in the Antarctic ice. Belgica was still short of James Cook's mark, although she had sailed further south than anyone had ever done in the Bellinghausen Sea. The officers, save for one person, were against the proposal. The scientists were vehemently opposed to the idea and were furious that Desgarloches was even considering such a thing. They had not signed up for a winter in the ice. What if the ship was destroyed? They would lose all the precious work they had done, not to mention their lives. And they pointed out that Desgarloches had specifically said that they would not spend the winter frozen in the ice. The one person on board with extensive experience in a polar environment was Dr. Frederick Cook, and as I said, he was against it. The only person in favor of such a plan was Roald Amundsen, Mr. I must suffer to find glory. He saw the others as weak and cowardly. He wrote, quote, They do not want to sail further into the ice any longer? Why did they come here then? Wasn't it to discover unknown territory? That cannot be done by staying at the edge of the ice and waiting. End quote. Dagerlash hesitated. He was loath to retreat, afraid of the reaction of the public and the press. He had done little more than map a fraction of the intended coastline, and he had not bested James Cook, and there was no magnetic South Pole. If he retreated now, his mission would essentially be a year behind. He'd need more money. There was no guarantee he'd get it. And what about the men? They might leave the expedition if given the chance. So, you know what solves all of these problems? Well, not going back. Dagerlash waited, and then an opportunity arose in the form of a storm. When things cleared, a passage south had been opened. This was what Dagerlash had been waiting for, an invitation into the heart of the Antarctic ice. Dagerlash went and conferred with Captain Loquante. No one knows the exact words that passed between the two men, but when they finished their conversation, they shook hands. Loquante then shouted out orders, to the south. Belgica's sails unfurled, and stiff winds carried her swiftly into the depths of the icy unknown. Within 24 hours, Belgica covered 80 miles, or 130 kilometers, reaching a latitude of 71 degrees, 31 minutes south, beating Captain James Cook. During this, and despite poor visibility, Belgica plowed through open water and rammed through the ice that blocked its path. Dagerlash wrote, quote, We enter, it seems, into another world, like heroes of Scandinavian sagas, the terrible gods put through supernatural trials, end quote. It was a glorious, heady feeling for a while, but the decision to go forward had been immensely risky. The men certainly had their misgivings, and every day that passed they wondered when they would turn around. And the further they went, the harder the journey became. Dr. Frederick Cook wrote this stark description about the push, quote, I cannot imagine a scene more despairing, though, than the Belgica as she pushes into the pack during the dark night. The noise is maddening. Every swell that drives against the ship brings with it tons of ice, which is thrown against her ribs with a thunder crash. The winds howl as it rushes past us and comes with a force that makes us grasp the rails to keep from being thrown into the churning seas. The good old ship keeps up a constant scream of complaints as she strikes piece after piece of the masses of ice. End quote. I love that description. It's easy to forget that we are in an immensely unforgiving environment. It was a world of wind, cold, and snow and ice, and no doubt despair and loneliness. And then, on the morning of March 1st, the men woke to clear skies and a world of white. Belgica was iced in and struggled to move. Orders were given to turn the ship around, but it was too late. 
And honestly, Dagerlosh didn't really want to turn around. Freezing the ship in for the winter was now his plan. In the summer, Belgica could continue her mission. On March 5th, in his logbook, the commandant wrote, quote, the ship doesn't move, end quote. Belgica was stuck for good. She was sitting probably about 500 miles or 800 kilometers west of Gramland, and before them was nothing but ice. They had no clue how close they were to land. Not that land would do them any good this far south at this time of year. The men now knew their fates, and they fumed at Dagarlash, saying he had gotten them purposely frozen in for the winter. They saw it as a betrayal. Dagarlash denied this, and he would never admit that that's what he had done. So we can't say positively that it wasn't a mistake, but let's not fool ourselves. That's what the guy was doing. Frederick Cook was horrified and dumbfounded by the decision. He had objected to the idea weeks earlier, and with good reason. He knew what lay ahead. He had spent a winter in the Arctic, but on land, which was easier than on a ship. Now, Degarlash and Laquante did give the men hope that they might yet break free. They told them that the ship had gone from 71 degrees 19 minutes south to 71 degrees 18 minutes south, meaning they were drifting north. But that was a lie. Degarlash had only told the men this to give them some hope and deflect their anger. In reality, the ship was drifting southwest about three miles per day. But soon it became clear that they were going to be stuck for the long haul. By March 8th, Belgica was firmly gripped by the ice and going nowhere. And then Bibi, the pet Gentoo penguin, stopped eating and died. The men took this as a bad sign. And thus all hope was abandoned and the men began to prepare for winter. The steam engine was shut off, the sails furled, and the propeller raised. It was time to officially prepare for winter in Antarctica. The men of Belgica were trying to become the first humans to ever overwinter in the region. Belgica, the sturdy little whaler, was now their only hope. She needed to withstand the pressure of the ice in order to keep them alive until next summer. On the positive side, the ship, which was down to 18 men, was not overcrowded, and they still had some sunshine. But that's the tricky thing. That sunshine was eventually going to go away for months on end. Outside of Frederick Cook, no one had experienced such a thing. Living in complete darkness week after week, month after month, it is a special kind of mental torture. And we can't forget the physical and nutritional challenges facing the men. Scurvy, along with the long night, will prey upon all the crew in the coming months. So I am going to leave Belgica here, stuck in the ice, and we'll pick up the story next time. But before we wrap up, I do want to talk a bit about their situation, and specifically the decision that got them to this point. And that falls squarely on the shoulders of Commandant Adrian Degarlache. I'll start by saying that Degarlache is an immensely frustrating man. It's hard not to admire his tenacity and drive. I mean, he got the expedition going. Without him, none of this happens. Whole nations had failed in their attempts to launch an Antarctic expedition, but he had done it. And the man, as we have seen, was a sailor. He didn't flinch while facing a storm or a massive iceberg. Also, he appears to have been a compassionate and caring person. There's a lot to admire in all of that. Yet at the same time, his inability to lead was maddening. I think the worst thing was that he often operated from a mindset of fear. He was always afraid about what the press thought of him, or the public, or his peers. Fear, so often, is what motivated him, and that's not necessarily a good thing. And that takes us to his decision to let Belgica get frozen in for the winter. Now, as I noted before, Degarlash said he never intended for this to happen. He stated that he tried to turn around, but he'd made the honest mistake of waiting too long. Most people didn't buy that. His fear of facing all those things we mentioned before, the public, the press, his family, drove him to this point. 
And you know what? It was a reprehensible decision. It was arrogant and cowardly. He let his own fears and insecurities outweigh the simple welfare of those under his command. And that, to me, is what this boils down to. This expedition was not one that was critical to some mission. They weren't saving some other shipwrecked men. They weren't trying to deliver medicine to a dying town. This was an expedition of science and exploration. Important stuff, but if it gets cut short, life goes on. Daguerre-Lush's ultimate duty should have been to the crew. And when their health and safety was compromised by his fragile ego, it's, as I said, reprehensible. Anyhow, that is my opinion on the subject. Next time, we will join Belgica as she prepares to spend the winter in the ice, a prospect no one was looking forward to, except perhaps for old Amundsen. So that is a wrap for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed this story. I want to finish by giving a big thank you to all of you who helped the show. I get notes from people all the time saying that they share the podcast with friends and family, and other people write to me and offer suggestions for future episodes and books they think I might enjoy. Thank you. I especially want to thank our financial supporters. From our Patreon group, special thanks to John Paul, Eileen, Thomas, Dan, Robert, Ralph, Rudy, Eric, Andrew, Elizabeth, Benjamin, Cameron, Christine, Gregory, Philip, Chris, James, Christopher, Arthur, Craig, David, Eamon, George, Peter, and everyone else. Thank you so much. Many of our patrons have been with the show for three years, so thank you so much for all of your amazing support. Anyhow, that is it for today. Thank you for joining us. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows. For those hitting the road, there's the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast and This Week in Travel.